Well, good morning again, everyone. Just a little, just kind of uh, full disclosure. As we left last week, we were talking about a very significant issue in our series, uh, the gospel, and how the gospel answers our deepest question. And we talked about just the, the odd issue that man is. We're made in the image of God, but yet we're also so fallen, and there's this nobility, yet there's this sinfulness in us. Building us up to the answer to that would be the hope and the work of Christ, our salvation. This week, as I was thinking about it, though, you know, right after we talk about Christ, we're probably launching into where the gospels embodied, the local church, how does the gospel change? us. We talk about Christ doing the work, but we're going to talk about how the gospel actually functions in our lives to change us, and then other issues of the Holy Spirit. What role does He have? And so, we're talking about all kinds of gospel uh, issues. So, I thought, but as I was reading through the gospels again, recognizing that the reason that the work of Christ is important, and it critically is, the reason it's important is because it is predicated on the answer to an even equally important question. Let me say that again. The work of Christ is important because it's predicated upon the answer of an equally important question, and that question is all throughout the gospel narratives. It's probably the most significant and relevant question in the gospel narratives, and it's only four words long. The question is, who is this man? So, the reason His work is important is because it's the, it, the answer is predicated to that question, who is this man? And so, I thought before launching into the work of Christ, we actually need to take that step back and ask it a more fundamental question, which the Gospels talk about all throughout. As a matter of fact, uh, when you think about it, when you read through the Gospels, you see this asked time. And again, when Jesus forgave the paralytic man in Luke chapter 5, the, the religious leaders were infuriated. They, they're asking themselves, who is this man who thinks he can forgive sins? Uh, in, in Mark chapter 4, so chapter 5, as the disciples are sailing on this just raging sea, Jesus calms the storm simply by telling it to relax. They didn't use that word, but you know what I mean. And, and the disciples in the boat, when the sea calms, they ask themselves, who is this man that even the waves listen to his voice? The very end of his life, when Jesus is walking or riding into Jerusalem, and everyone's crying out, Hosanna, and there's such fervency about what he's about to, the whole city asks themselves in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 13, who is this man? That question is actually the hinge on which the whole gospel plot turns. In every one of the three what's called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that, that cover by and large the same events, the gospel plot hinges at the exact point Jesus Himself asks that question. In Matthew chapter 16, Mark chapter 8, and Luke chapter 9, at those chapters when the, the narrative plot switches to His coming death, Jesus asks His disciples, all His disciples, who do people say that I am? And then He turned to His twelve, His kind of inner circle, and said, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus is the most important question we seem to see in the gospel narratives. So important and not to be outdone, John makes the identity of Jesus the driving engine of his entire gospel. Look what he says in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that, so there's a purpose statement. I wrote all these things, here's why I wrote them, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, Christ is not his last name, like Jesus' first name, Christ is his last name. He's saying, I'm writing these things so you believe Jesus himself 
fulfills the role of being the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. To this day, that same question is still one of the most striking and relevant questions we can consider. So much so that famous historian and scholar at Yale University, Yaroslav Pelikan, wrote this in his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, saying, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about Him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. But more to the point of, of the thing, what I'm trying to say is this quote that I have from an author, I could not track down where I got it from, but it's so striking because of the point he makes. This is what he says, Plato taught for 50 years, Socrates taught for 40, Aristotle taught for 40 years, and Jesus only taught for three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers of antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from Him. Jesus did not write a single poem, but Dante and Milton and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by Him. Jesus composed no music. Still, Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, and Bach reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratories they composed in His praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter from Nazareth. So, with such a monumentally important figure that has had such a significant impact on the world, it would be natural to assume that entire society, the entire society would know without doubt the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, whether or not you agree with that answer, whether or not you like the answer isn't the point, but that there would be a consensus with who He is because of His huge impact, His disproportionate influence on the globe and all society. But that question, who is Jesus, still causes as much controversy and confusion 2,000 years after even Jesus Himself asked the question. And we see it both within the church and outside the church, all these kinds of misperceptions about who Jesus is. So we see outside the church there are some secular misperceptions about Jesus. There's about three that, I, that generally they fall into. Number one, it's the moral Jesus, right, that Jesus is a, a good moral teacher, He's the ideal of humanity. Uh, he emphasized social equality and the unconditional ethic of love, right? The moral Jesus. Then you have what's called the mystical Jesus, that Jesus was one of many, and there were many during that time in Palestine, of these kind of messianic, charismatic figures with these great teachings. And Jesus happened to be one, happened to be one of these charismatic, ironic preachers who kind of touched a populist nerve and taught people to see beyond the veil of the mystical and the real. That's the mystical Jesus. Then there's the mythical Jesus. The mythical Jesus is the one we see at our newspaper stands quite a bit, that He was a good teacher, uh, a moral individual, but He's surrounded by so many fairy tales and fables and, and myths that it's really hard to access who He actually was, and it's just really a myth at this point. 
So we admire him, but we're not even sure if he's actually real. So those are the kind of secular misperceptions, but the church has our own misperceptions, right? So the one I, I call first, I call him the life coach Jesus, right? This is the Jesus that encourages you and offers great life hacks and other tips for living your life. So the life coach Jesus. Then there's the therapist Jesus. He's a popular one within the church. He, this Jesus totally accepts you, makes you feel good about yourself. He's always ready to listen to you when you're ready, and he's not too pushy on the things he teaches. Then there's the religious Jesus, right? The religious Jesus demands change. He demands holiness, conformity, Scripture memory, and no smiling or enjoyment. That's the religious Jesus. And then we have the social justice Jesus. He is a biblical teacher who wants us to make a difference in the world primarily through good deeds and our actions of social justice and environmental sustainability or whatever else, right? That, those are the kinds of ideas we have of Jesus, now, the reasons these misperceptions exist isn't because they're totally wrong. Every one of them have a kernel of truth within them. But the question isn't, what does Jesus teach or what ideals He represents? That's never been the question. The question is, who is He? Not what He taught not ideals that he embodied, but who is he? That has always been the question, and that's the question we want to consider this morning, and the way we're going to do that is by thinking of three other questions. So, we're going to answer that question by answering three other questions, and they are these. What does the Bible teach about Jesus? Why is that truth about Jesus important, and how should that truth about Jesus change us? So, what does the Bible teach? Why is that truth important? And how should we be changed as a result? Those are the three questions we're going to seek to answer this morning. Now, just let me give a quick disclaimer again. <clears throat> as I was studying this about, okay, what does the Bible teach about Jesus? Obviously, as we've known very clearly in the last couple of weeks, the entire Bible is about Jesus. Um, a couple of books I was reading this week, one recommended or one suggested by somebody in our church, these two books alone are over a thousand pages. So, there's a lot to be said about Jesus. We're just going to pick one point of what the Bible teaches about Jesus, because I think it makes the point uh, of all the possible things the Bible teaches about Jesus. We're just going to talk about one this morning, and that is this. For some of you, for most of you, you already know this. For some of you, this might be brand new. And without doubt, it is probably the most, one of the most radical claims the Bible teaches about Jesus, and that is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Right? That's hopefully not anything new to most of you, that Jesus is entirely fully God and fully man. Now, notice I didn't say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That actually would lead to very nonsensical kinds of conversations. Now, for most people, when you say something like that, they understand what you're trying to get at. But I want us to think carefully because the Christian church has thought carefully about this. And if you're engaging somebody who isn't sympathetic to Christianity, we don't want to give them opportunities to discount that we're irrational people. So we want to be thoughtful about this. Because to say, let me give an illustration, let's say if there's a bowl on a countertop, and I tell you that bowl is filled with 100% chocolate and 100% peanut butter, right, outside of being a Reese's peanut butter cup, does that statement make any sense? that the bowl is 100% filled with chocolate and at the same time 100% filled with peanut butter. Does that make sense? It's not a trick question. This is, you all know, have basic math. 
No, it doesn't make sense. It's either or. If I'm saying it's 100%, it's maximum capacity is either is chocolate. It can't then be peanut butter. It's either fully chocolate, 100% chocolate, or 100% peanut butter. It cannot be both. Cannot be 200%. 100% is the maximum. And so when we're talking to people, we want to be very careful because the church fathers were really careful in saying this. None of the Christian creeds will ever say Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. You're not going to find that there. It's not because they didn't have the mathematical concepts. They just knew that was misleading. They all say that He was fully God and fully man. Whatever it means to be fully and truly deity, Jesus is. Whatever it means to be fully and truly humanity, Jesus is, and He is fully deity and fully humanity. They're very careful in saying that. We'll get back to that in a little bit, but let's look at those things one at a time. Jesus is fully God. Now, there's a lot of places in Scripture we can go to. We're going to look at five passages of Scripture to make the point. First is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul writes, who, though he was in the form of God, the original word is morphe, uh, form or nature, we get metamorphosis, change something, it's talking about the very nature or essence, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Later, Paul would write to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Then we skip to John chapter 20 and verse 28, where poor Thomas is called Doubting Thomas for his whole life because he just wanted evidence. He sees the resurrected Christ, he falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. You know what makes these claims more astounding is that the belief that Jesus is God arose in a Jewish context. What makes the claim that Jesus is God Himself astounding is that claim arose in a Jewish context. You say, why is that important? Because the Jews were the most fierce monotheistic framework you could have ever imagined. No other group of people tenaciously held to monotheism like the Jews did. And yet from the Jews, a movement came out proclaiming that somebody was God Himself. It is simply astounding that the Jews would have ever said that. It's even more astounding is not only was that blasphemous to the Jews, to the rest of the population, which is primarily Greek, the fact that a man could be God was scandalous. The gods in their, in their polytheistic view were high above and transcendent from us petty material beings and wouldn't mess up their hands by engaging with us. So for a god to be man was a scandal. So for most of the popular, some of the population, what the Christians were proclaiming was blasphemous. The rest of the population, it was scandalous. If you're making up a faith system, this, you're not off to a good start. Yet the early Christians proclaimed to the grave that Jesus was God. 
This is why Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.23, he said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So from the very inception of the Christian view to its very conclusion, it was blasphemous and scandalous that a God would even become man, and then, then this God would be then crucified like a criminal. This was insane. I mean, just surely practically speaking, Nobody would make something like this up in that context. The reason we're not freaking out is because we have 2,000 years to get used to the concept. But to them, this was insanity. And yet, they staked their lives on the claim that Jesus was God. He is fully God. But secondly, they would also say, Jesus is fully man. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 2 alone, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, verse 40, and verse 53, Luke records the birth, the growth, and development of Jesus Christ like any other normal human being. He was born, he, he grew up, and he developed, gained in wisdom. Now, uh, I want you to go in your Bibles, turn open to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13. Um, Everyone who knew Jesus, there was no doubt that He was an actual human being. Everyone who came in contact with Him realized or didn't think of Him as any, any differently than anybody else. So here we have Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. If you're new to reading your Bibles, the big number is a chapter, right? I told you that. The big number is a chapter. The little number are verses. They're not footnotes. So look at the big number 13, and then the little number 53 is the verse. Let me read it to you. When Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And, he, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Look at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Hey, wait a minute. I know, isn't this Joe's kid? This is Joe's kid and Mary's kid. What's the deal with this? Verse 56, and, not, and are not all of his sisters and brothers with us, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Where then did he get these things? Verse 57, and they took offense at him. Stop there. So everybody who knew Jesus clearly looked at Jesus like he was a normal human being. What are you talking about, son of God? I saw him yanking splinters out of his thumb because he was working the plane wrong in the shop. This is Joe's kid. What do you mean he's, he's God? Everybody who knew him, everyone had contact with him, was convinced there was no doubt in their mind he's like everyone else. Now, the reason I make a deal about that is in, in our postmodern minds, Jesus being man isn't hard to figure out. I mean, that, that's not the hard one to swallow. We, we, we probably err too far on the fact that he was a man, right? For them, they struggled with his, with his, really, his divinity, or excuse me, they struggled with his humanity, whereas we struggle with his deity. You see, early in the church, after the Christian message began to spread, they couldn't conceive of deity and humanity mixing, but it, since it was very clear that Jesus was divine, they taught that maybe it was his humanity that was dubious, that, that, he, that he really wasn't a human being, which is why when you're reading the New Testament, the writers will make comments like, no, 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 we touched him, we saw him with our eyes, I heard him, I saw him eat fish, I felt, I saw the wounds, you see that in the New Testament. It's because they were leaning on kind of rejecting his humanity to embrace his divinity. We go the other direction. 
We kind of reject the fact that He actually could be God, but we, we're going to camp on His more as humanity. And so we err on, on the two different sides here. Now, the way we err on it, when we say that we, we discount kind of um, His divinity, but we, we accept His, we, you know, I got, there's so many thoughts I'm going through my head, I'm losing track here. <laughs> Let me slow down. So they may have doubted His humanity, right? They didn't think He was a real human being, and a lot of belief systems came up that it, He wasn't, He just seemed to be human, but wasn't really human. We would deny actually kind of the, histor- the, the history of Jesus, what, what I mean by that is, we'll discount that, that there was an actual man that was being claimed as a man-God, even though we have lots of evidence around that. So, for example, as early as 110 AD, we have a man who was a Roman governor named Pliny the Elder. This is extra-biblical evidence. He wrote this, Christians are accustomed to meet on a fixed day, Sundays, before dawn. Let me tell you, all you second service people would be in a lot of trouble if this is the first century church. (laughs) They would meet at dawn, thank you God for a wiggle room and the way we do things, and they would sing responsively a hymn to Jesus Christ as to a God. Here's my point. We have evidence from an extra-biblical source of the Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, saying, look, these Christians are gathering, and they're worshiping this human being, this guy Jesus, and they worship him as if he was a God. So, what we have is extra-biblical evidence of people actually saying they acknowledge this regular human as if he was a God himself, that he was fully God and fully man. So, let, let me sum some of this up before we go on to the next question. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is those things. You've heard me say it, fully God, fully man. One person, two natures. One person, two natures. What? That doesn't make sense. It sounds, it sounds illogical. It's not. It's mind-blowing. It's amazing, but it's not illogical. That's why we don't say He's 100% God and 100% man. That is illogical, right? Jesus is not a square circle. He's, he's, he's not, it's not an impossibility. We are bumping up against, quite frankly, some mystery in the Bible. If you're a note-taker, write down Deuteronomy 29, 29. I love that verse because in that verse, God Himself says, look, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that I've revealed, I revealed them to you and to your children so that you may do all that is commanded of you in the law. Okay, why is that an important verse? I love the balance of what God is saying. He's saying, look, guys, I'm infinite, transcendent, almighty God. You're, you're just like, you're just the thing I made. There's no way you're going to understand everything about me any more than a four-week infant is going to understand a 40-year-old man. It's not going to happen. There's going to be parts of mystery, and those areas of mystery you're just not going to be able to have access to. But the things I do reveal, I'm revealing it about me to you so that you and your children can know, and then you can be faithful and walking in my commands. That's an important balance because sometimes in the Christian church, we're either all going to, it's all mystery, man. This God is, God, Jesus is God and man stuff, man, that's, that's too hard, hard, hardcore and complex. We just, we can't really dive into that. It's often an excuse for laziness, not wanting to be thinking through things. Or you have on the other extreme some people that are, hey, God's revealed everything, so we've got to figure everything out to the gnat's eyebrow, man. Every, every I's got to be dotted, every T's got to be crossed, our theological system's super tight, and if you're not in, you're out. No, that's not how it works. 
There's going to be in God a certain amount of mystery that we bump into and we just acknowledge. But there's also stuff He's revealed, and He's saying, the things that are mysterious, secret things, you're just never going to get to, but that doesn't let you off the hook from the things I've revealed. And Jesus being fully God and fully man is one of those kinds of things we're split in the middle. It's mind-blowing. It's amazing. It's a mystery, but it's not incoherent, nor is it illogical. One person, two natures. Let me make it a little bit easy to try and wrap our minds around it. The person, the one person is referring to the who, the active subject. The who of it, who, the, the natures is referring to the whatness of it, the, the attributes, the, the capacities and, and properties. So one person, the who, that has the two whats, the attributes and capacities and properties of divinity and humanity, those whats exist in one who. You guys making some sense there? So we have a who, the person, with two whats. And those what's are the attributes and capacities and potential or properties of God and man. Whatever it is to be divinity, to be deity, he's got those attributes and properties. And whatever it is to be human, he's got those as well. The two what's in one who, one person, two natures. And that is God. That's what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. So what does the Bible teach about Jesus? He's fully God, fully man. Why is this truth about Jesus important? right? Let's talk about that now because you can say, okay, let's, we're going to come out of the deep end a little bit here. You say, oh, well, the, the fact that Jesus is God and man, yeah, I just, this is some bizarre teaching that Christians ad, ad, adhere to, and, and since I'm a Christian, I kind of uh, buy into that too, just like I got to vote Republican or something like that, that, yeah, I don't really understand it, but I just do it. That is not it. And my Democratic Christian friends say, praise God, right? That, that, that's not it. We think through what we believe, the doctrine, this idea that Jesus is both God and man is not just some peripheral issue that doesn't have any impact in the way we live. It's actually essential to the Christian faith. If God, if Jesus is not God and man, the Christian hope falls apart. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, the Christian hope falls apart. That's why this is important. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about Jesus and why it was important for him to be fully man. There's several reasons. Let me give you three. Jesus has to be fully man to represent humanity in full obedience of all God's commands. If you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. I want you to see this in the text yourselves. Romans chapter 5. This one's not going to be on the screens. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. This is what Paul's writing. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Okay, what's he referring to there? What's the one trespass? Adam's sin that we learned about last week in Genesis chapter 3. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's going on, gang? He is saying, just like Adam represented humanity and blew it in the Garden of Eden, and all the sin and unrighteousness was given to us as a result, Christ was fully obedient in the Garden of Gethsemane and was righteous, and all the righteousness he accrued comes to us as well. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul is calling Jesus the last Adam. 
He's not just trying to be rhetorically cute. He's linking the two together. He's saying Adam was our representative and he blew it and put us in the sin. Jesus is our representative because he's a full human being and he nailed it. And now we have the blessings. He's the last Adam. If he's not fully human, he cannot represent humanity in obeying all the law. He has to be fully human to represent humanity. He also has to be human, fully human in payment of our crime. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see this again in the text. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Okay. So, Jesus has to be fully human to represent humanity in obedience to all God's command. Jesus has to be fully human to represent humanity in payment of our crime. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Now, this three verses says a ton of mind-blowing truths, okay? Try not to get distracted from the overall point I'm going to be making. The writer writes this, "'Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood,' he's really talking about all people, "'he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil. I love verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, and that will preach. Verse 16, for surely it's not to angels that God helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. We learned in our study of Galatians, we are the offspring of Abraham if by faith you put your trust in Christ. So, he's talking about us, the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews is just an amazing book on the work of Christ. The point I'm getting there is that he had to be fully human to make propitiation for our sins, to appease God's wrath, to pay the debt. Point three, which is hinted in Hebrews, Jesus needed to be fully human to be the mediator between God and man. A mediator has to represent two parties in a negotiation. He has to be fully human to represent us to God. He has to be worthy enough to represent God to us. If he's not an appropriate mediator, he cannot seal the deal, so to speak. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, there's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. He has to be human to represent us in that transaction. So that's why Jesus has to be fully human. There's several reasons more, but that's enough for now. And why does Jesus have to be fully God? Give me three reasons for that. Number one, only someone who is infinite can bear the full penalty of our sins. A finite being is incapable of dealing with infinite debt. If he is not God and he's just a finite being, then he cannot deal with the infinite debt we owe. He has to be infinite as well. Number two, only if Jesus is fully God can he be the ultimate and final revelation of God. This is the point that Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 was making. If Jesus is not God, how can he be the ultimate revelation of God? He has to be God. If Jesus is not God, He cannot assure that your sins are forgiven, could He? Because God forgives sins. That's what Mark 2 teaches us. 
If Jesus is not God, then we cannot say with Paul that God demonstrated His love to us when Christ died. Okay, go back to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 5. Many of you are familiar with this passage. It's a great passage, but it makes the point very strongly why Jesus has to be God, has to be divine. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Here it is. But God shows His love. Okay, so who's the the subject here? God. He's doing what? He's showing His love, right? He's showing His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so if Christ isn't God, how is God showing us His love? How is God demonstrating His love? If Christ isn't God… God's not demonstrating His love. He's demonstrating this character named Christ. This guy loves us. It's like me saying, man, Dave, I really love you, and I'm going to have this Yahoo here die for you. You It's profane to say that, but, but that's what's going on. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God demonstrated His love when Christ died. If Christ isn't God, God isn't demonstrating anything by that transaction. You understand what I'm saying? Paul is saying Christ is God, because if He's not, He didn't demonstrate His love. God, Christ has to be fully God. Last point, only if Jesus is fully God can we be assured of our salvation, that it's possible, because all through the Old and New Testaments, the message is being hammered and hammered and hammered home that no being, no human being, no creature can provide salvation, only God can give it. So if Jesus is not God, He cannot give us our salvation. He cannot be our Savior. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, one of those watershed verses in the Bible, says salvation belongs to the Lord. And then God says in Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord and apart from me, there is no Savior. God is saying that, Yahweh, God, no Savior. Yet, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when the, when the disciples are in front of the religious leaders, what do they say? Look, there's salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. There is no Savior except Jesus. But yet, in Isaiah, God said, there is no Savior but me. The two have to be the same. If Jesus is not God, then according to the Bible, He's not Savior either. Jesus has to be fully man and fully God. This, what might seem abstract, bizarre doctrine, if you want to impress your friends and they ask you what you learned in church today, you can say, hey, well, we talked about the hypostatic union of Jesus. All that means is uh, He's a person that's unified in two natures, okay? This abstract thing that nobody ever preaches on, hardly, and which is why I didn't put it as a sermon title, turns out to be an essential ingredient to our salvation, because if He's not fully man or fully God, then the Christian message of hope falls apart. So, we talked about what the Bible says about Him. We talked about why that's important. Let's talk about why we should, how this should change our lives, because good theology, good doctrine should change us, right? We see that all in the New Testament. Four points here. Sorry, this is a nine-point sermon. Number one, um, how should this change us? How should the reality of Jesus being God and man affect our lives? Number one, God the Son fully identifies with us while never compromising His holiness and purposes. We can and should 
fully identify with the world around us without compromise as well. You know, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would be in the world, but not of the world. And if you're like me, you've noticed, we, we tend to get, you know, either or of that element right. We're, we're like, we're in the world, and we're also of the world. We're just, we're just like the world. We're in it, we're there, but there's no gospel witness. There's no, we're not an ambassador. We're not a light in the darkness. We're just there. Or we're, we're not in the world. We're, just, we're not in it, we're not of it, we're just out. You know, I'm so busied with my churchly duties and Bible studies and Christian get-togethers, I don't even have to touch the world, right? But, but Jesus' intent, illustrated by His character, is we can be in it and simultaneously not of it. Just like Jesus took on humanity but was not defiled by it. How are we doing modeling that look, modeling that. It's, it's called being incarnational, right? God becoming man. How are we being like Him in that way? Number two, God the Son willingly left His glory to live and work in humility and self-sacrifice, right? So, Second uh, Corinthians 8 9, it says that Christ left the riches, the eternal halls of God, made Himself poor so that through His poverty, you and I could be rich. Philippians chapter 2, we read it a little while ago, it's talking about how God, even how Christ, even though He was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to cling on to, but left all that and came down to earth. And not just coming down to earth, but to live as a servant, and not just coming down to earth to live as a servant, but coming down to earth to live as a servant and to die the death of a criminal. Paul says you should all have that mindset. So let me ask the question. How are we doing modeling that aspect of Christ's life? Are we living for personal glory, upward mobility, and ease? Or are we actively realizing Christianity is going to cost? If it costs Jesus, it's going to cost us. Is it costing you? How? It should our faith should be costing us somehow. You know, Ben Warner, you guys remember him. The Warner family, wonderful family. Ben passed away suddenly just about a year, less than, oh, back in March. But he preached once, and when I was meeting with him, he said, if our morality isn't dangerous, it's probably not fueled by the gospel. What he meant by that is that it's so easy to be a moral good person and conform, but the gospel morality challenges the world's status quo. And if our morality, Ben said, isn't dangerous, it's not fueled by the gospel. How is our faith costing us? Three, and this one should be of great encouragement. We should be encouraged that the person of Christ Himself is a constant reminder that God can redeem any situation no matter how broken, lost, or dysfunctional. Friends, humanity, our, our very species, is as lost and dysfunctional and as broken as it can get. And yet, because God indwelt it, He's redeemed it and shows us what humanity ought to be and can be and one day in Him will be. And if humanity can be redeemed, then any situation can. Fourth and finally, I know this is not up there, it should simply lead us to worship. When we know that you can't make this kind of stuff up and to the extent that God has, if I could say it this way, thought through everything, 
it should lead to worship of who He is. So, how are we doing being in the world? Is it costing us? Are you encouraged by Christ? And does it lead you to worship? That is the goal of knowing the person of Christ. Next week, we'll talk about the work of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we recognize that things we've been talking about are just, as we said at points, a mystery and beyond us. But we also recognize you've revealed enough in your word that we could comprehend so that we might be led to worship, to lead different lives. Lord, it does us no good to have our minds filled with information if our hearts are not transformed. So just pray that as we have learned something about your Son, that it leads us to worship, that you came and inhabited humanity to redeem humanity, and not just temporarily, but transcendent God now forever enshrined in a human form for our sake. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we pray that it would lead to your worship and praise. We thank you for these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.